With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and we've got so much to talk about because, you know, I, I did end of year, year in review stuff for a couple shows. I had Ryan Senega on last week as a guest that took up the whole hour, and, and you know, we've had a board meeting, and you know, a few other things go on in between, and, and there's all sorts of stuff going on out in the world. So, my gosh. But, you know, I always would rather talk about what you want to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show. And last week surely showed that, you know, if you call in, we'll get you up there and you get to ask your questions. 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets Robin, my call screener and producer or extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the show. Again, that's 646-721-9887. So, you know, we, we had a lot go on over the last week or so. And, hey, oh, sorry. Your mic was open for a second there, Robin. Sorry. Um, yeah, just, go ahead and push, just go ahead and push one, and, and I'll see it on my board when you're Can I have your first name, though, for a while? Hey, hey, Robin, your mic's open. <laughs> One of these days, I, I think I, I would actually get it. <laughs> All right, I'll put you put you on there and just press one when you're ready. All right. Okay, thanks. Yeah, you're hearing our car, call screener extraordinaire talking with a caller because <laughs> her mic was open. Um, but back to the show. We are student-run radio. By the way, no commercials. Robin is an unpaid intern. Uh, actually, she's just a really good friend that does this out of the kindness of her heart. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes we have some some strange things that go on. So I want to kind of talk about several things, first of which, I, you know, I want to just hit on something that I didn't put in my promo, partly because I was concentrating on a few other things. Today's been an, an insane day for me. Uh, Three different meetings, multiple phone calls, trying to get ready to go camping this weekend, which I'm I'm haven't gotten ready at all because I've been so busy doing other things. Um, and I, I just had to kind of rush a promo out onto the, onto the internet. But I don't want to forget to talk about 
Horton Pond, Holt Reservoir, it's also known as. It's that small little pond if you drive up to the huge town of Horton, <laughs> outside of the even larger town of Triangle Lake, um, and go, keep going north a little ways on some you know Forest Service roads there, and you get to this old mill site that's really in the middle of nowhere that um, you know went out of business, and the land was turned over to the federal government. And in fact, some of the land surrounding it has actually been turned over to the Confederated Tribes, the Lower Umpqua and Saisla Indians, um, except for the actual pond. So the Bureau of Land Management still owns this little pond. And it is a kind of a gem because people can primitive camp there free of charge. There's no, no charge. It's loaded with smallmouth bass. So it's a great place to take and teach a kid to fish because they're almost guaranteed to catch something. And the water is nice enough to swim in in the summertime. So, and kayaking, lots of wildlife. So it's really popular with a lot of West Lane County residents because they've been going there for years. Well, the Bureau of Land Management, you know, has, has known for a while that the dam for that pond is actually classified as a high hazard dam. And I won't get into all the engineering behind it and the studies you have to do to make that, that determination, but it's a high hazard class dam because if the dam fails, there could be loss of life or significant loss of property in the breach flood that happens after a dam failure. So with that in mind, about three years ago, the BLM started a uh, environmental analysis under the National Environmental Protection Act, or known as a NEPA study. You know, most people have heard that term before. And in that first uh, startup, they had alternatives for saving the pond in the alternatives. And one of the alternatives was to remove the dam. Well, the study got stopped when COVID came about because it screwed up all of their public meetings that they had planned, you know, out there at the, the Blatchley Grange and, and uh, other places to gather input. So they stopped it. And when they restarted the process last year, they had eliminated all the alternatives for saving the dam and saving the pond. It, the, all the alternatives they were looking at now all removed the dam. The only real choices people had to comment on was what happens after the dam's removed? You know, should there be hiking trails put in? Should there be, you know, continued a primitive camping area? You know, sort of things like that. That's not an alternative analysis. You made your mind up. You're going to pull the dam out. And, you know, I sort of understand Bureau of Land Management, not Black Lives Matter. That's when I refer to BLM. It's Bureau of Land Management has never owned, you know, dams as, a, as part of their business portfolio and let alone high hazard class dams. In fact, they only have one other dam in the U.S. that's considered high hazard class. So they're trying to jettison this thing. Um, but all public input's been against removing the dam. Lane County is considered a, quote, cooperating agency in this NEPA study and, and analysis. You know, which means I basically get notifications of their continuing process. 
Uh, I got to attend a couple meetings, and, and my input then was you need to put the alternatives for saving the dam back in, <laughs> and I did not get listened to. So um, I kind of need my board to to get together and, you know, kind of the public comment period ends at the end of the month. I need our board to weigh in with me to object to the to moving forward with an alternative analysis that does not look at saving the pond and reservoir. I mean, and, and you know, and we need people also to contact Congressman DeFazio and Senators Wyden and Merkley and say, hey, this is a federal agency doing this. Maybe you guys ought to help facilitate getting that dam transferred to maybe a different agency that has dams like the Forest Service or better yet, the Army Corps of Engineers. And at the same time, come up with the $2 million it's going to take to fix the dam and improve the fish passage for the dam. You know, we're giving out trillions of dollars over the last year or so in, you know, American Recovery Act stuff and, and, and ARPA and uh you know, the, the infrastructure thing, a couple million dollars to save a, a very valued um, recreational facility here in Lane County is not much. And in addition to being so valued for recreation, the Oregon Department of Forestry uses that pond to dip helicopters into when they fight fires in the area because it's easy to access for their helicopters and works well. In fact, they've used it fairly recently. I don't know if folks remember the high pass fire, but that was the closest water source to the high pass fire, and they dipped a lot of helicopters out of that that reservoir to stop that fire. Um, so, you know, what my ask for folks is to email the commissioners and ask us to save Horton Pond, and to you know go on you know. You can't just email all three of our, our U.S. representatives. You have to go on each one of their individual official sites and fill out a form, a contact form, and ask them to help save Horton Pond. Yeah, if we don't get it on people's radars, uh, you know, it's on mine because it's my district and I get it. You know, and how important that thing is for fighting fires, how important it is to the local Horton store to stay viable which, by the way, is one of the few places you can buy gasoline anywhere in that area for miles around. Um, so it's just such an important thing. So before I get into some of the other stuff, take a minute, you know, it, it, and, and if you're on Facebook here listening, there's a Save Horton Pond Facebook page. Go there. There's instructions about emailing and stuff like that, things that people can do. You can like that page. The more people have liked that page, the broader I can say, you know, you know, refer other elected officials, say, go look at the same Horton Pond page. It's got over a thousand people that have joined it. I don't have actually had over a thousand a week ago. I don't know what it has today. I haven't been there. But please, you know, help save Horton Pond. We, we're on it. We're on a, a clicking clock now uh, of trying to beat that January 30th deadline to provide comments to the Bureau of Land Management on their environmental studies, which, by the way, they haven't made public. 
So I don't know exactly what you're commenting on. So it just seems like, you know, Bureau of Land Management is ramming ahead with trying to pull that dam out of there. And unless there's an uproar to elected officials, both county and federal, it's going. So, you know, if, you, if you've ever kayaked there, ever camped up there, if you just want to support your fellow West Lane folks and saving a recreational facility, if you think that fires might actually be an issue in the future, maybe, <laughs> you might want to ask for that pond to be saved. So, huh. Opening rant done. Now calm down. Ha ha ha. Uh, <laughs> and uh, just to remind folks again, uh, call in number 646-721-9887. Just don't forget to press one if you want to get in on the show. We're going to move on. You know, and speaking of fires and all that stuff, we're going to talk about climate first. And I talked about this last month, I think, um, and I mentioned it again in some of my year in review stuff, but, you know, Lane County is working on this climate action plan, despite the fact that we've got one of the smallest carbon footprints for our county operations per capita of population amongst the five counties we went and compared ourselves to, including Multnomah. You know, despite that, despite the fact that Oregon as one of the smallest carbon footprints per capita in the U.S., and that both Oregon and the U.S.'s carbon footprint per capita has been falling for the last 20 years, we're moving ahead with this climate action plan. But part of the problem is we're jumping ahead with phase two, and we knew that the governor was coming out with her climate protection plan. Don't get the two mixed up. One's the CAP and one's the CPP. <laughs> But the governor's climate protection plan was actually finalized and made public in the middle of December. We finalized this phase two prior to that, completely ignoring the fact that the governor was working on her plan, even though there was comments to staff and the climate action committee that it was being worked on and it needed to be taken into account. So our, our projected actions in there and some of the facts and figures and project, you know, data projections are based on bad data because now it's mandated that, that certain industries have to take certain steps by certain years. So the projections for the difference between, you know, what this plan calls for and, and reality now is no longer accurate. So we also need the Lane County Commissioners to kind of put a little bit of a hold on that send it back to our climate action committee and staff and say, you need to compare this to what's happened with the climate protection plan, true the two up and then bring it back to us. Might want to also try and remove some stuff from it, but you know, I've talked about how the, the plan advocates for um, taking away your choice of how you want to heat your home and cook your food. Yes, they're proposing support for banning new natural gas infrastructure pushing for forcing people to convert to electric with their, their appliances from gas. And, and uh, you know, just basically, you know, natural gas bad. And I don't know about you, I'm pretty happy with a gas cooktop. <laughs> In fact, I've got an electric oven and a gas cooktop. 
because electric ovens bake more evenly and all that. Gas cooktops, much more responsive. And if you're any sort of a cook, that's what you want to be cooking with. Let alone if you're a commercial kitchen or industrial process. You want to talk about stopping new industry in Lane County? Don't allow any new industrial facilities to to use utilize natural gas anywhere in their industrial processes. See how far that goes. Don't let them heat massive buildings or or heat their their you know whatever they have to heat up for their processes. And that includes if you think about some of these organic companies locally like Nancy's yogurt or whatever or or you know I'm sure almost all of them use natural gas in their process some of these really fancy restaurant people want to go to that are vegan etc I'm sure there's natural gas back in that kitchen and in fact most of the Eugene City Council that's also proposing this has natural gas in their homes So really, we need to get in there and and talk about, you know, being a little bit smart. You know, and I've done a whole show previously about the peak morning demand on our electric grid in the wintertime and how natural gas keeps that from rising and how much more efficient it is to burn natural gas to heat people's homes on those winter days in the morning rather than have them burn natural gas somewhere far away to put electricity in the electric grid to meet that morning peak demand because that's what's going to happen not you you know in the winter time when it's foggy and cold and we have our peak demands here in the willamette valley the wind isn't blowing where the wind farms are and you're not getting solar and i'm sorry battery capacity is not the technology is not there yet for grid scale battery storage. You know, we have to think and be careful. Already we've destabilized the electric grid in the Northwest, where there used to only be less than a 5% chance of blackouts here. It's all the way up to 8%, according to the Northwest Electric Reliability Council's report. And if decarbonization continues to move ahead as proposed, they're projecting by 2030 that we will be at 33% chance of blackouts in the Northwest. Third world level of electrical reliability. Think about all the people that use electricity to generate oxygen, you know, the nursing homes, et cetera. I mean, a lot of places have backup generation, but how much, how are, you know, what if there's a malfunction in, in that system? 33% chance of blackouts. Got to be a little bit more deliberative about this stuff and not just do stuff because it sounds like the right thing to do. We need to carefully study what steps we take and move ahead with those, A, that have the most impact and, and, and are effective, and B, don't have you know, detrimental side effects. Or, or not just trading one carbon output for a different carbon output, maybe even worse. I guarantee that that natural gas heated home converted to electricity that then has to be 
heated with natural gas into the grid somewhere else, you're actually going to create three times more carbon output because of the inefficiencies of generating electricity and transmitting it through the grid and converting it back to, to heat energy in a home. Three times more efficient to burn that gas right in the home. But, you know, I'm hoping my board will listen to my arguments next week and delay that climate action plan. Something to pay attention to for next week. So what else is going on here in Lane County? See, I haven't had a chance to talk about local Lane County stuff too much recently. Oh, and by the way, Don Leslie, that's running for my seat on the Board of Commissioners, supports banning natural gas. Just so you know. In fact, she was on the City of Eugene's Climate Action Committee as they drafted their plans that proposed banning natural gas. And she's supposed to be an engineer. Don't know how that calculates. So, continuing on, I want to talk a little bit about Highway 126. Of course, I always tell people anytime you want to jump in on the conversation, you know, 646-721-9887, please press one because that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. We have people that call in just to listen. In fact, we've got two of them sitting up on the board now. And if you're listening and you want to get in, all you have to do is, you know, press one and it'll flag us and we'll get you in on the conversation too. But I want to move on to Highway 126, which I've talked about multiple times before. I've mentioned it sometimes and I've talked about the infrastructure bill and how anemic it was and actually improving infrastructure and how this is a perfect example of just dire need for new infrastructure and, and replacement. Highway 126 from Eugene to Benita is a deadly highway. It's been the scene of more serious injury and fatal accidents than almost any highway around. In fact, it was the scene of a horrible fatal accident not too long ago here in Benita, where somebody you know, blew a stop sign, hit somebody in one lane, forced them out into the other, causing a head-on accident and, a, and two fatalities, including the person that was the breadwinner for a family of four, two young children and his wife, and his wife had recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So think about how much that particular fatal accident is ultimately going to cost society in those, you know, two people that are, you know, one, now you've got somebody that's, you know, with a terminal disease, you know, kind of cast adrift, two children that, you know, who knows what supports they have and how how badly that's going to impact them and how much they'll cost the taxpayers as they grow up and, and with the trauma and everything else. Um, just, you know, just a huge cost. The project's not a cheap one. You know, it's, it's in the $300 million range from end to end, but it can be broken in phases and things can be done but we, there was a presentation to what's known as the Lane Area Commission on Transportation last week. And the Lane Area Commission on Transportation was originally formed by the mayors of the cities because at one point the Board of Commissioners was playing the role of 
prioritizing projects to go to the Oregon Transportation Commission for ODOT's Transportation Improvement Program. You know, also referred to as the STIP. You know, you'll hear that term sometimes. But that was, you know, they were objecting to how Eugene-centric the Board of Commissioners was and how some of the rural projects like the West Eugene Parkway that would have helped rural Westland County were, were, were killed and other things. So they forced basically the, the commission to, and, and created this Lane Area Commission on Transportation. Now it's advisory to the Oregon Transportation Commission on these transportation improvement plan priorities. It's not really advisory to ODOT. Now, House Bill 2017 comes along, and this, I'm sorry for this little bit of background, and basically removes area commissions on transportation from that STIP prioritization process. So they no longer really have a function. And in the same point, it's been years since that original rebellion against the commissioners. Mind you, it was against the Fleener, Handy, Sorensen Book Club commissioners that that, that rebellion happened against. Uh, and uh, and the 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 act has kind of been taken over by some you know very Eugene centric representatives, and it's being run and staffed by Elcog with very Eugene centric policies. So ODOT presents the um, what's been coming out of the NEPA study for the Highway 126 improvements, which are looking at widening the road to four lanes, putting a centerline concrete barrier in so we don't have these head-ons. And at several of the intersections, they're looking at putting in two-lane roundabouts because of the amount of rear-end crashes that happen along that roadway at intersections and driveways. Uh, and Robin, we'll get to the roundabout thing later. <laughs> but when it came to the, you know, it was a really good presentation you know, explaining exactly why it was happening, things that were being done, and, and, you know, that, you know, there's wetlands mitigation that goes along with this, stormwater, you know, um, they're treating the stormwater as it comes off the pavement also. It's, you know, everything's being environmentally mitigated. Um, the usual suspects, you know, and, I, I, and uh, one of them's the, uh, on multiple transportation committees, uh, here in Eugene and is head of a little not, I guess, I guess it's a nonprofit advocacy group around transportation, which is basically don't build any new capacity. We're anti-vehicle and, and uh, we're, you know, don't think there should be any widening of any roads, no new lanes, period. Rob Zako and uh, Commissioner Claire Surrett and a few others, you know, that are Eugene folks chime in that you know, wow, that's a lot of new pavement you're going to put in. And it's like the average daily traffic on that road exceeds highways with much better facilities right now. I mean, that road is literally two lanes with no shoulders. I mean, if you lose it, you're either in one of the, the in the lake, in a, in a ditch, or you're over the center line hitting another car. There's nowhere to go on that road. And you can't improve that just by putting a barrier down the center because then if there is an accident, you can't get emergency services, medical services to the accident. 
So when, once you put a barrier down it, you have to widen. And just putting, you know, a third lane in between isn't enough. I mean, we've learned that in other places, you know, where they're, I forget um, which legislator's husband got killed on I-5 because somebody crossed that very wide grass median and head on, and head on with them. Um, so to try and keep the footprint as small as possible, they put a concrete barrier right in the center and made it four lanes so that if there is a crash on one side, there's the capability for traffic to pull into one lane to let, let an emergency vehicle come up on the accident um, and, and you know, try and maintain traffic flow. And it prevents that head on. So that's why there's four lanes. And in addition to that, there's a parallel pedestrian facility you know, that, that meets the needs of that alternative modes um, to and from Eugene and Benita which is a really needed path. But of course, you know, they just can't accept the fact that there's actually going to be a wider road and there might actually be more capacity on that road. They want congestion, some of these people, because they think it's going to force you to get out of your car and get into mass transit. Now, mind you, one of the issues about taking the bus from Benita to Eugene is you never know when there's going to be a wreck and you're going to be sitting on that bus forever. At least, you know, if you're, if you're in a car, you can go, you can take off, you can get into some of the alternate routes. One of which is Camas Swale Road to Crow Road, which has gravel in the middle of it. Not exactly the bus going to go that way. We're going up around, you know, on, Clear Lake Road on the other side of the reservoir or even going all the way down um, and taking Crow Road in, there's, there's ways you can get around. But, you know, the bus route is 126. You know, so, you know, just I, I don't understand these people that think congestion is going to solve any problems. But, you know, it, it was surprising to me. So you might want to think about some of you folks out here in West Lane, because, you know, this thing is so important to the economies of West Lane. You know, they forced, you know, Florence and the coast into a tourism economy by, you know, basically locking up our force. And that group of people now has to depend on tourism. Well, if it's really difficult for the tourists, that fly into Eugene, rent a car, and of course tells them to take 126 out the coast is a real problem, you know, and it's backed up. That kind of cuts their tourism dollars off somewhat. So that, that having that road be safe and passable is really important to that economy, let alone the fact that the Benita industrial areas have been really difficult to market because you can't count on the freight time to get between Benita and Beltline, let alone the freight time to get across the Lamont River on Beltline to get to I-5. Industrial properties depend on reliability and freight movement. And you cannot really count on the reliability of Highway 126. That's why as you go by that industrial park, you know, it's actually part of it's been developed as mini storage rather than a, as a good industrial <laughs> employer, you know, out here making, you know, making things and adding value to Lane County and hiring people and paying good wages. Instead, we've got mini storage 
because Highway 126 is a bottleneck. So, and, and you know, at the same time, City of Eugene's looking at their urban reserves. You know where they want most of the urban reserves? Along Highway 126, out towards Fisher Road and the lake. <laughs> so I, I hope that Councillor Surrett and Rob Zako maybe take a deep breath, really think about this project and come around a little bit. But I don't think some of the true believers ever will because it adds lanes. It's the, I mean, they're coming after the improvement projects for Beltline that are trying to fix that Willamette River crossing because they don't want any new capacity. Zero. Then again, you know, there is one aspect of this project that might be a little controversial, and that's the whole idea of adding roundabouts at several intersections. Mind you, one of those intersections was where those two fatalities were recently here in Benita, Houston Road. You know, another one's been site of other fatalities, um, Central and, and 126. Green Hill Road and 126 have been multiple accidents. And one of the things, you know, on rural highways, unless you're gonna do a completely grade separated intersection, these roundabouts in those particular applications have a significant decrease in accidents. And they almost completely eliminate fatal and serious injury accidents because they slow traffic down. There's a merging action, not a stop and make a left turn across opposing traffic, not a slow down to make a 90 degree right turn into a, a street. Um, you know, both of those things cause those rear-end accidents. The, the left turn sometimes cause T-bones. People misjudge how fast traffic's going. Um, and the side streets having that direct access into high-speed roads, trying to make those left turns, or if they're not paying attention for some reason and blow through a stop sign or blowing through stop sign into currently high-speed traffic, that has no center divider, which caused that head-on collision at Houston recently. So there is engineering statistical data showing that they do significantly improve safety. But I know Robin, my call screener producer extraordinaire, really doesn't like roundabouts. <laughs> of course, she did drive a truck an 18-wheeler for a living for a while. So she speaks from experience, uh, a different experience than some people's. But these are not what I would think of as some of these, you know, like the one at Green Hill and Barger that's completely too small. <laughs> these are, you know, highway two-lane roundabouts, rural roundabouts. Um, anyone that's been to... Um, Great Britain probably has experienced a few of these driving the countryside of Great Britain. Um, so, but I'll let, I'll give Robin a moment maybe just to express her, her opinion about roundabouts. Actually, I'm glad you brought up the one about Green Hill because I was going to do that. I almost, because uh, you're not expecting one to be there, especially when it's dark and rainy and you're doing the, you know, the speed limit and all of a sudden, oh shit. Here's this thing in the middle of the road. 
and without enough warning or whatever, you're you know you're slamming brakes. And there's actually been last time I was out there, there's actually been uh, tracks where people have gone over it. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of brings up the uh, uh, the thing on 126. Now I'm looking at the um, Oregon.gov ODOT report on the final report, and they're, they're showing the five that you're talking about: one at Houston Road, Elmaker, Central Road, Fisher Road, and Greenhill. And I think it's interesting. One of the comments in favor of the roundabout, you know, just kind of paraphrase here, says the intersection at Elmaker Road needs more than just one lane improvement. And I'm going to kind of skip down a little bit. It is very difficult to find an opening in traffic flows to safely enter 126 eastbound. Too often drivers stack up on Elmaker waiting to go east, and eventually they have to make a risky jump in front of 65-mile-an-hour traffic from east to west or both. The speed limit there is not 65. It's not even 55. That That's based on the 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 speed studies they've done out there, which I'm aware of. Um, they do these studies where they look for the 85th percentile of what traffic moves at because it's one of the things about setting speed limits and trying to get speed limits reduced for traffic safety. There's studies that show that if you drop the traffic speed limit too far below what people naturally travel, it actually is more dangerous because you get a differential in traffic speed. But having driven that section often enough, 65 is probably about average, to to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Well, looking at uh, all these, well, getting back to the Green Hill example, if you're going to put a roundabout on a state highway, you need to have enough warning, and I'm not talking about just signs with no lighting, you know, relying on reflectors, but something that just says, hey, you've got an obstruction in the road coming up to give you a chance to actually slow down and maneuver around it, not just, you know, like we all know that's been in Oregon for any length of time. It rains a lot. The road, the black road absorbs your headlights. It's hard enough to see. And then all of a sudden, just like the crazy age, you got this crazy maneuvering thing you got to do. Yeah. And and I think the difference will be one, you know, it's going to be ODOT's facilities and their their roundabouts are designed differently. I mean, you'll come into them and have to kind of, they'll be, it'll actually swing you to, to do that kind of merge action. Um, and you won't come at it straight on. The Green Hill roundabout was done by the city of Eugene, and I don't know what traffic engineer designed that thing, but it's just done all wrong, and their warning for it are, are very poor. If you know, having driven, not driven, but I've been around Great Britain at least in one trip, and you know well ahead of time you're coming on a roundabout. Yeah. You know, signage for it, there's flashing lights, um, they they do pavement um usually rumble strips ahead of them of some kind. So it's it's like if you miss the fact that you're coming up to a roundabout, you, you'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind, you know. <laughs> so I, and I believe that's what you'll see in this kind of rural highway setting. You're going to get, you know, roundabout in, in a half mile, you know, or a mile or something even back. You'll start seeing, depending on how fast, and how big of a gap there are between roundabouts, how far out the warnings will start. But I, I, I'm, I can't imagine you'll see something like the Green Hill roundabout, which I, I think was 
dangerous and I objected to it when it was done. You know, I was still doing engineering work at that time, and I told the, the folks that were planning it, that, that it, you're, you're, you're wrong. You're, this is wrong. You're doing this all wrong. It's probably, probably that same drunken engineer, the one we gave the award to, that did 6th and 7th Street and also decided to put planters in the middle of the intersections around the university. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> and also, the, not to mention those uh, traffic calming devices that, oh, we have a Chevron in the middle of the road. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, uh, they just, yeah. There's some things they do that are just, you shake your head sometimes. But, you know, then they lowered the, the, the speed limit in all of Eugene down to 20 miles an hour. And supposedly that was going to fix it. But do you remember what I said about 85th percentile? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it's kind you know, of intimidating, yeah, it's intimidating when you get passed by a wheelchair going yeah. down. But it, it makes just as much sense, too, on a four-lane highway. Every corner is a crosswalk. You must legally stop and let tra- and let a pedestrian go by on a four-way, tra- a four-way lane during rush hour. That is totally safe. Yep. Yep, it is. So, yep, but that's, that's kind of what's going on with Highway 26 and all that. Uh, and I see um, we've got a hand raised by one of our listeners. So I'm going to jump to Jeff here because he probably has something to say about either roundabouts or 126. Or the weather from Florence. Hi, Jeff. Hey. Yeah, the weather report first. Uh, Tide's going out. It's this horrible little mist we got going, but it's it's beautiful. Just overlooking the Sisla River right now. Um, I actually want to change the subject completely, but yeah, um, it's kind of eye-opening out on 126. 126, and I saw, because in in Florence, we see vehicles that we recognize all the time, and there it was, this destroyed car. I knew the guy was dead as I passed it, and that's somebody I passed, you know, every week. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, a pretty dangerous road. Very dangerous. Before we get away from your weather report, though, did you survive the tsunami? (laughs) That was so ridiculous. At 8 o'clock in the morning... We got this thing on our phones here in Florence. It was basically all boats to sea. <sighs> and so, which meant if you have a boat in the marina, you need to get it out of there right now. Um, because if you ever see the video of what happened in Santa Cruz, when that was, it must have been only about a one and a half foot wave. When it came through the, uh, the marina, it destroyed. It destroyed everything as it went as it just rumpled everything as it went down the uh, through the marina. Well, they lost some craft in Port Orford. It was the same way. It was just how the, the angle of the opening of the, of the um, bay there and where the docks are was like the perfect storm. And, and those, that chop came into that one tsunami years ago and, and sank a couple boats at the docks there. So, yeah, yeah, the worst, yeah it was worse than California. Yeah, you just know it's going to happen. I mean, and uh, it was funny because I look at real estate all the time, and here's this nice big piece of property comes up for sale on the uh, the Sayusla. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I I didn't really expect anything big here, um, you know. But it was amazing to see that on the internet that it looked like a nuclear explosion, that um, that volcano. Yeah, that uh, was. Just it's amazing. Mother Earth kind of reminds us now and then that we're we are just living on her. 
<laughs> and she is mighty. I got a question. Yeah. For you. Uh, up in Florence, did they have the sirens going off? So, boy, can you imagine if the sirens go off on a Friday at 12 and there actually is a tsunami? Because it's at 11 o'clock. And I guess you guys heard it. It's pretty eerie. But they clear the sirens. The, the, all is okay by using the uh, close encounters of the third kind um, sound as the all clear. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, so everybody in town gets to hear the da, 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 da. Yeah, <laughs> but it's boring. So, so you're either out of, enda- out of endanger or you're being invaded. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I change the subject real quick? This is, I just need sure. to um, just pick your brain on something. So here in Florence, uh, I think it's sometime last month, I think it might have been, we passed something called the multi-unit property tax exemption for low-income housing, you know, if they meet this sort of thing. Um, it, is this really a detrimental effect in, in, in the amount of money that the police and the, and the ambulance service that they're not going to be getting for 10 years? No. And I'll kind of explain why. Um, and okay. it's been used it's been used really well in Eugene and Springfield for years, and is now starting to, to be utilized in some of the smaller communities. Cottage Grove kind of led the way. Um, you know, you're probably aware there, there's very little workforce housing in on the coast, um, mm-hmm. and it's really difficult to build multi-unit housing because it's under the commercial building code. There is almost no commercial certified contractors on the Oregon coast, electricians, whatever. So that's one of the things you're trying to overcome, building multi-unit housing on the coast. Allows for this to be done in areas that are zoned for it. There are already areas of Florence that are zoned for multi-units, but they're just not getting developed. So they're they're on the tax rolls now for just the value of the land or whatever improvements are there now. What this allows for is to try and get people sort of over the financial hump of having to import labor, the high cost of materials and everything else to build the, to stimulate the building of these units is it weighs the increase in the property tax value for that 10 years. So there's no, mm-hmm. it, it, the land value and whatever current assessed value, the taxable assessed value, continues on during that 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, then it bumps up to whatever the current value is. And 10 years in the life of a building is a short short period of time, as I'm sitting in a house that was built in 1950. Um, so you still have got a lot of tax years that will be available. At the same time, the community benefits from having this housing available that, you know, you go to any restaurant or hotel in Florence and ask the manager how easy it is to get employees and what the biggest barrier is. And they'll tell you, we can't find a place for them to live. You know, and that, and that's, that's, you know, so I, I think, yes, you know, there is a, you know, a, a period where there isn't an increase in the taxes, but it's not a decrease. 
and ultimately it does increase. And and you look at some of the, you know, the controversial project here in Eugene was the capstone development on Willamette, you know, because people thought it was ugly and, and cheaply built and all that stuff. And that, you know, why were they going to get a 10 year tax waiver? Well, it's on the tax rolls now. 10 years is up. You know, <laughs> if people can remember that, that controversy that long ago, and now, you know, the Eugene police and, you know, the county and everyone else that, that taps into that the school district, that that tax value are now getting that value so i don't look at it as a negative i look at it as a way of trying to solve a really serious problem i mean there's there's some other ways to work on that too but it's just one tool in two toolbox yeah so it's like a long-term investment yeah yeah because there's yeah zero family housing being built in florence right now Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're still building single-family houses. I, my my thing was, you know, I, I, this sounds so selfish, but, you know, the incentive to stay in, in one of these units is, well, don't ever make any more income than, you know, what, what is allowed. And I always thought that was tragic to have something like that hanging over somebody. You will lose your housing if you ever get ahead in life. Huh, but, you know, yeah. we you're right. We do need housing. It depends on who the who builds it and how they qualify for the for the the tax exemption. You know, if it's homes for good that's taking federal tax credits as part of their construction funding, there are federal limitations on on income that are even more than the the, the multi-unit property tax exemption. Um, and the way it's set up, there can actually even be a mix of of, of um, properties involved in that. Um, so don't necessarily, you know, if it's a, like the capstone was done by a private developer to be rented to students and there was, there's no federal requirements on income. It's, it's just where in the market did those enter as far as pricing of, of rent, uh, and all that qualified them for the exemption. You know, so, so it's, it's not, you know, people here, low income housing, the two quite aren't multi-unit property tax exemption, low-income housing are, are two different animals. So, you know, there will be the opportunity for somebody living in there to earn more. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like kind of like yeah. federal tax stuff where you can get thrown out. Yeah. Because the, the example that was brought here, it was an example is, is the person that was actually going to be building you know, um, was getting all grants, and it is to be low-income housing, and and so they'll be getting the 10-year tax break here, and it's that you know we we do have we have a mix here, and we'll be just getting more of one kind. But other than that, um, yeah, the housing. It's great that you can talk about such a wide breadth of items. And to be so versed on all of them, it, I don't know how we're ever going to replace you. <laughs> I appreciate that, Jeff. I, you know, 11 years of reading board materials and a 29-year engineering career dealing with municipal governments, you know, because it was civil engineering. And, and I did a lot of land development work as a civil engineer. So I did a lot of land use work. Gets me pretty well versed in government. <laughs> And has that, you know, 
has the ability maybe to recall some of this stuff and understand some of the subtle differences and and where people sometimes make equate things that not, aren't necessarily equated. Yes, maybe there's somebody looking to do a multi-unit development in Florence that is already projecting to do low-income housing, but it, there also could be other zone land for multi-unit in Florence that a developer could come in and develop um, for market housing as long as it's meets certain requirements can actually qualify for that exemption. And that's, you know, where you're, that's really where you see the um, workforce sort of housing um, that really improves that workforce housing situation. But the, even the low income stuff, um, you know, if you're working in, in the backside of a restaurant there in Florence or you're, or you're uh, making up rooms uh, in one of the hotels, you're probably qualifying for, <laughs> for that low income housing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, and um, and uh, I'll see you next Wednesday. I'll just listen to the rest of the program here, and and thank you so much for being uh, for being there. All right. Hey, Jim, before you, oh, this this is this is for you. And of course, it doesn't get queued up properly. But anyways, I tried, Jeff. Sorry. Yeah, we got the idea. It's all clear. Jeff, thanks for chiming in, and, and thanks for you for continuing to listen to the Bose Nose Show. Always great to hear from from Florence and the coast. I'm going to be on the coast this weekend. I'm leaving to go camping tomorrow, but I'm actually going up to the northern coast because I'm attending an Airstream rally in Cannon Beach, and I'm so happy that that high pressure system's coming in because that's supposed to be gorgeous. So expect a crowd this weekend, Jeff. <laughs> oh, my. Well, that's, see, Jeff was just listening, hit that that one button so he could get in on the show and, you know, got a chance to talk about something that I hadn't planned to talk about, which was the multi-unit property tax exemption, better known as a MUPD, in, in government acronym speak. Um but it, it's an interesting tool, and particularly in, a, in an area like Florence that is so desperate for workforce housing, they need every tool in the toolbox they can they can find to try and get some of that built. Um, so I want to move on from Horton Pond and climate action plans and Highway 126 and natural gas bad to our elected officials' compensation board. Now. There is a statutory requirement from the state of Oregon that we have to review for the elected officials' compensation because it's set by the Board of Commissioners um, in, the, in the county. And we have to look at that, you know, basically once a year. We basically, no increases, put a moratorium on it during the, the and there hasn't been an increase in any of our elected officials, I think, since 2020, when I think there was a 2% COLA that happened at the beginning of the year before the pandemic. Mind you, I think I voted against every increase for the commissioner's salaries. In fact, when I first became a commissioner, I made a motion for and initiated a 2% reduction in our compensation by getting rid of our 2% deferred comp accounts. 
Uh, I cut our office budgets. I cut our 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 fund that funds uh, board activities down to almost nothing because, as far as I was concerned, commissioners are pretty damn well paid and compensated. And as long as I couldn't staff rural patrol at an adequate staffing level, I wasn't going to pay myself an extra dollar. And when I say commissioners are pretty well compensated, it's crept up, you know, with not my support, but it's crept over over the years to where we currently have a, a salary of, I believe, and I got to double check my numbers here, $87,869 a year, which if you add our benefits on all to it, our total compensation is $101,619 a year. That's pretty darn good pay for being one of five people responsible for hiring three people that we hire, that were in charge of hiring and supervising. And those three people hire and supervise everybody else in the county, with the exception of some of the elected department heads that are part of that elected officials compensation study, which there are four other uh, elected people in Lane County that we have to set their compensation for. The, the assessor, you know, the tax assessor, Mike Coles, the DA, Patty Perlow, currently Patty Perlow, the sheriff, currently Cliff Harold, the justice of the peace, and I'm going to, I'm botching his name right now in my mind, um, and ours. Now, the assessor, the DA, the sheriff, and the justice of peace all require significant certifications and education to serve in those positions. You cannot become the sheriff if you're not certified as a law enforcement officer by the Department of Safety, DP, Department of Public Safety Training and Stand, Department of Public Safety Standards and Training something or other, DPSST is, is the acronym, which is, you know, an Oregon training academy and all. And it, so you have to hold those certifications. Um, you know, there's residency requirements and all that. But when you think about our sheriff, he manages a department that everybody reports to him in a military-style chain of command. He's the commander-in-chief for our, our police, which also includes our jail. So he's got... 200 and some people that kind of report up to him and manages several direct reports. Um, and that's a pretty big responsibility, millions of dollars in budget. And, uh, you know, so you kind of think about that. The assessor manages a department with multiple employees and is responsible for accurately setting our, our the appraisals and assessments for 177,000 tax accounts in Lane County. It's pretty important. Kind of have to have a little bit of education certification on appraisal and assessment to run that department. Our DA, got to be an attorney, licensed practice law in the state of Oregon, and you're basically running a small law firm. You're the managing partner in a small law firm. Can you imagine what, how much you make in the private sector? Justice of the Peace, you're running a court. You have a small staff that reports to you in a court. 
course, that's only a half-time position, and it's one of our lowest-paid elected officials' positions. Commissioner, one of five, three reports. And we've left one of those positions open for years, the, the, the performance auditor. So it's really two employees that report to five people. Now, mind you, governor makes almost 100000 a year, but the secretary of state only makes 77000 a year. So I made a motion and we approved the, the raises for or the recommendation to the board from the budget committee for the assessor, DA, sheriff, and justice peace. Lori Trieger made the motion and um, one of our budget committees seconded to give the commissioners a raise. Unfortunately, it failed, but it failed with affirmative votes from Joe Burney, Heather Buck, and Don Leslie, who is Heather Buck's appointee to the budget committee that's running for the West Eugene, West Lane County commissioner's seat. So just remember that Joe, Heather, and Don all voted to give the commissioners a raise. Hundred and one thousand six hundred and nineteen total cop. With that, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose Nose Shows. We're running a little bit long. And I'll have more than enough to talk about with next week's board meetings. Thank you for listening. Coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.